encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the book of 2 Samuel in your Old Testament. We're going to be looking at chapter 17, verse 24, all the way through chapter 19, verse 8 today of the book of 2 Samuel. Remember with me just an overview of the book, chapters 1 through 9, record for us David's dependence on the Lord. Before he takes action, he goes to the Lord in prayer and expresses his dependence on the Lord for direction. But in chapters 10 through 12, David grows more self-dependent than God-dependent and ends up in a downward spiral towards sin. Sin which actually imprinted his sons so that his sons started following the model that had been set for them by their father, sin. Chapter 14 brings us to David's son Absalom who followed the pattern of his dad and killed his brother out of spite and anger for what his brother had done to his sister And David didn't extend grace, didn't extend forgiveness, and in the absence of grace, rebellion set in. And that's what chapters 15 through 20 are all about, rebellion. We see Absalom, David's son, declaring that he is king, not his dad, even though his father David had been God's anointed choice for the throne. Absalom declares he will now control the kingdom. And in last week, in chapter 16, verse 15 through 17 through 23, it appeared that Absalom would go unchecked, that there's no way to stop him in this desire to take control. But then we came to chapter 17, verse 14 where we read our human author's theological understanding of what was going on behind the scenes. And he records for us that God purposed that Absalom would go down in defeat for his rebellion. So everything that happens after that point, we know the outcome. Absalom didn't. But it's the Lord already saying, Absalom, you're going to fail. Which brings us today to the section in which we're in, chapter 17, verse 24, through 19, verse 8. Absalom is going to pursue his father and go to war. He wants power. He wants control. Oh, wouldn't it be great if I was the one in charge, if I was the one in charge of the kingdom who is seated on the throne. David is going to retain control. Neither of the men, neither the one who sought control nor the one who retains control will find fulfillment in the pursuit of control. I'm going to read the section together. You can follow along in your copy of the Word. And uh, I'll begin in chapter 17, verse 24 of 2 Samuel. Then David came to Machaniam, and Absalom crossed the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. Absalom set Amasa over the army in place of Joab. 
Now Amasa was the son of man whose name was Ithra the Israelite, who went in to Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, the sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother, and Israel and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. Now when David had come to Machaniam, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, of the sons of Ammon, Machar, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grains, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curd, sheep, and cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Then David numbered the people who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent the people out, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. The king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you also. But the people said, You should not go out, for if we indeed flee, they will not care about us. Even if half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, now it's better that you be ready to help us from the city. Then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and thousands. The king charged Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. Then the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. People of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David, and the slaughter there that day was great, 20,000 men. For the battle there was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, for Absalom was riding on his mule. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, so he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him kept going. When a certain man saw it, he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who had told him, Now behold, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? And I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. The man said to Joab, Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king charged you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Protect for me the young man Absalom. Otherwise, if I dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. And Joab said, I will not waste time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered around him and struck Absalom and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained the people. They took Absalom and cast him into a deep pit in the forest and erected over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, each to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to preserve my name. 
So he named the pillar after his own name, and it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Please let me run and bring the king news that the Lord has freed him from the hand of his enemies. But Joab said to him, You're not the man to carry the news this day. You shall carry news another day. However, you shall carry no news today, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you've seen. So the Cushite bowed to Joab and ran. Now Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said once more to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why would you run, my son, since you will have no reward for going? But whatever happens, he said to him, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and passed up the Cushite. Now David was sitting between two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall and raised his eyes and looked, and behold, a man running by himself. The watchman called and told the king, and the king said, If he's by himself, there's good news in his mouth. He came nearer and nearer. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, Behold, another man running by himself. And the king said, This one also is bringing good news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimahaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, This is a good man and comes with good news. Ahimahaz called and said to the king, All is well. He prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground, and he said, Blessed is the Lord your God who's delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my lord the king. The king said, It's well with the young man Absalom. And Ahimahaz answered, Well, when Joab sent the king's servant and your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was. Then the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Behold, a Cushite arrived. And the Cushite said, Let my lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. Then the king said to the Cushite, It's well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then it was told Joab, Behold, the king's weeping and mourns for Absalom. The victory that day was turned to mourning, for all the people heard it said that day, The king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day, as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son, my son! Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you've covered with shame the faces of all your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and the daughters and the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you'd be pleased. 
Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. So the king arose and sat in the gate when they told all the people, saying, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. Then all the people came before the king. We see in this passage the lives of two men, a father and a son. Absalom, the son, strives for control, strives to finally ascend to a position of power. David, the father, is going to retain control. Neither of the men will find fulfillment because it is not in the pursuit or the possession of control that gives inner peace. When I was a young kid, I wanted to be a farmer. My grandpa was a farmer. My uncle was a farmer. I thought, what better life could there be than that of a farmer? Now, in those years, kids like me had huge farm sets. I don't know if kids play with farm sets today or not, but I had a big farm set. And my farm set uh, was always orderly. My hogs were always neatly placed in pens all in a row. My cattle never got out. My chickens and my ducks never approached the farmhouse or the concrete around it. My augers always worked. I had I used popcorn in my auger and I augered in popcorn into my wagon behind my tractors. Never had breakdowns. It just seemed idyllic. Well, as I grew older and spent more time working with my grandpa and my uncle, I realized that farming probably wasn't my calling. One of the things was that I would go broke because I have absolutely no mechanical ability. I get frustrated trying to put my my grease gun onto the Zerks on my John Deere tractor. I get frustrated doing that. I'd, I'd go broke just calling mechanics all the time. And I also learned that if there's a fence, the livestock's going to be on the wrong side of it. And I even learned without being a farmer that the ducks will never stay off the cement. If you are around ducks and geese, you will know what I mean. It's a continual frustration of me since we have a pond behind our house. Oh, wouldn't it be great just to have control? Just to be able to control your day. I mean, if you could just have absolute control over your life, you'd be at peace. If I could have control at work. So that, that my team would work in smooth conjunction with each other and I was appreciated and, and everything, all of our deadlines would be met. If I just had control at work, then I would be at peace. If I just had control over my children, you know, even my adult children, if they, if I just could have them act in the way that they should, then I would be at peace. Or my finances. 
or in my marriage. If I just had control over the situation. And one of the things that we're going to see in this section today is that neither striving for control or even possessing control and power will bring the fulfillment that we so yearn for in the depths of our being. Absalom learns it the hard way. David experiences it the hard way. Being in a position of control is not an end, and it's not a source of peace. So we find here this man, Absalom, pursuing his father, David. Tempted, Absalom is, for control. And one of the things that we'll see today is that sometimes we can even be tempted as believers to take control so that the outcome would be something that God would like. But the issue is that unless we wait for God's timing and do it in God's strength, we're actually rebelling against him, even if it's something in the end result that would align with his will. And here we find Absalom. 2 Samuel 7 says it clearly that God's will is for a son of David to sit on David's throne forever. And Absalom could look at that promise and say, well, it must be God's will. But I don't want to wait for God. I want it now. And he pursues his father. Often believers are tempted to take control, but do it by relying on their own power even if it's to accomplish God's purposes. Verse 24 of chapter 17 says, Then David came to Machaniah. This is the town where Saul's son Ishbosheth, in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, set up his royal city as he declared himself to be king over Israel upon his father Saul's death. It would have been a pro-Saul region. Quite possibly, David went there because Saul's family and followers knew that David had honored Saul. Quite possibly, he would be received well in this city. Remember, this is across the Jordan River, east of the land of promise, in the Transjordan region. So that's where David is held up. It's where he's taking refuge. And we see in verse 24 that his son Absalom is pursuing his father. He crosses the Jordan after his father. His father has a small number of troops. Absalom has the massive armies of Israel with him. It's interesting in verses 24 through 29 that David finds provision, but in the most unlikely of places, through non-Israelites. So we find the Lord still providing for David in ways that he would have never expected. As we come to chapter 18, we see David once again acting strategically. He divides his forces into thirds, assigning a commander to each force. And he gives this command in verse 5. It says, The king 
charged Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. We'll see in a few moments that one of David's servants takes this very seriously, but David's general Joab ignores it. The focus of this section is not the battle. The battle really is talked about in just three verses, chapter 18, verses 6, 7, and 8. It tells us that it took place in a forest. David is a smart, strategic warrior. He knows that his men will excel strategically in the forest, more like guerrilla warfare. He splits his troops up into three, takes refuge in the forest, and it tells us that the slaughter was so great that Absalom lost 20,000 of his men in one day. It also tells us that the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. God's hand was definitely at work. We cannot forget chapter 17, verse 14, when it said, For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. When God is not on your side, you have no chance. So the battle goes bad. But the battle is not the focus. The focus here is this pursuit of control on the part of Absalom and the retaining of control on the part of David and this whole aspect of Absalom's rebellion. So we find in verses 9 and following that Absalom is riding on his mule. Now, those of us who, from my era, that grew up watching shows like Gunsmoke would not have a real high opinion of a mule. It was what Festus, the deputy sheriff, rode. We would view them as a stubborn animal. You know, it wouldn't be a thing of pride. Hey, would you like to see my mule? But in this era, to ride the mule would have been uh, considered a high honor. It's a royal honor to be mounted on a mule. And so we find Absalom on his mule coming under a large tree, most likely from chapter 17, verse 14, Absalom's hair gets caught in the tree. You remember that guy that plays for the Pittsburgh Steelers? I can't even think it was Palmolive or something. Not Palmolive, Palmato. I don't know, the guy with all the hair. Just picture that in Absalom here. We know from chapter 17, verse 14, that his hair weighs like three pounds every time he cuts it. And so most likely, Absalom's caught by his hair hanging down, and that royal animal, that mule, which some believe as it went on past him as he hung there, kind of symbolized the kingdom just left. Well, word gets back to Joab via... One of the servants said, hey, I just saw Absalom hanging in the tree. And Joab is furious. Why didn't you kill him? I would have given you money if you would have just killed him. Well, the servant is much more honoring to the king than Joab. And he said, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. Verse 12. For in our hearing, the king charged you and Abishai and Ittai saying, protect for me the young man Absalom. 
Joab said, I'm not going to waste my time talking with you. He takes three spears and throws them through the heart of Absalom. And then his armor bearers take more and just, they kill him. And then they take his body and they throw it in a pit and throw rocks on top of it. So here we have a man who sought control, thinking that if I could just have control, I'd find ultimate fulfillment. And yet he dies without a child outside the land of promise, covered in a pit with rocks. Rebellion brought him discipline, not blessing. This week, Barbara, my wife and I were, we were driving around Cedar Rapids on a, on a road that we often are on and there's a home that we often admire and we noticed that the homeowner put up a fence in the front of the property. Now, it wasn't a fence with a purpose. It was a fence to nowhere. It's just uh, a fence right across the front of the property, but it encloses nothing. and There's no sides to it. It's just a decorative fence. And all I could think to myself was growing up on an acreage as a kid, hearing words from my dad like, that fence isn't going to paint itself. And all I could think of, why did you do that? It's just work. You're going to have to trim around it. Now you have to mow around it. In my era, those cross pieces would have been wood. You would have had to paint it. This this was that high-impact plastic stuff. But we're Midwesterners. You know what? The only thing that's keeping that from happening is just us. We just have to decide to do it, and we'll do it. The only thing that's keeping that fence from being painted is us having the willpower to take control and make it happen. The problem is, is that too often we bring that attitude to Jesus Christ and to the Lord, our Father. You see, living the Christian life is not taking control. Living the Christian life is relinquishing control. Living the Christian life is not an independent spirit, like, I can do this. Living the Christian life is a depending spirit on the Holy Spirit. And while in our culture we value an independent, take-control spirit, it doesn't work with God. In fact, when we, even if it's something that would be a a godly purpose, if we try to pursue that purpose in our own strength, and our own timing, we are actually rebelling against him. Keep your finger in 2 Samuel 18, if you will, and turn with me over to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew 4, we find Satan tempting Christ. And remember that it is God the Father's ultimate will for the Son to one day reign over all the kingdoms of the earth, seated upon the Davidic throne in God's kingdom. Well, here, 
Satan comes to Jesus and says, hey, I could give you the kingdom. And you could be seated and have all the nations of the earth yield to you. Well, we know that is God's will. But Jesus knows that it's not just an issue of is it God's will. Is it God's will in God's timing? And by his strength, not mine. So we see in verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, Jesus Christ saw that it was important not only to do God's will, but to do it in God's timing, by God's strength. Here, Absalom could have rationally said, well, I know from 2 Samuel 7, although they wouldn't have said that, but I know from what God's word has been to my father that one of his sons will sit on his throne forever, and I'm his son, so that means I should take control. God's will, but by God's timing and God's enablement. Well, we see here that even though Absalom desired to take control, God had a different purpose. God's purpose was for David to retain control. But what's interesting in this section is neither the one who sought control nor the one who retained control finds fulfillment. Notice with me as we come to chapter 18, verse 19, that David does not find fulfillment in keeping the kingdom. We come to verse 19 of chapter 18, and we see this passage, it goes all the way from 19 to 32, about messengers. Who gets to take the news to David of how the battle has turned out? And we find in verse 19, this guy Ahimehaz, the son of Zadok the priest, comes to Joab and says, can I run and tell David how things turned out? David says, no way. You see, David remembers the events of chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, when messengers came and said that Saul was dead. Joab remembers the events of chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, when messengers came to David and said, Isbosheth is dead. All of those messengers were killed. And so Joab says to Ahimehaz in verse 20, you're not the man to carry news this day, but you shall carry news another day. You shall not carry no news today because the king's son is dead. Let's send this Cushite. He's a foreigner. He's expendable. If David gets mad, he can kill him. So the Cushite takes off running. Ahimehaz continues to to Joab and says, I really want to go. Fine, go. And Ahimehaz takes an alternate route and actually is going to beat the Cushite. Well, they see these two messengers come, and word eventually reaches David that Absalom, his son, is dead. Oh, the kingdom's still yours. You're still in control. You still have power. But for some reason, that doesn't bring fulfillment to David. And it says in verse 33, The king was deeply moved and went up to the chambers over the gate and wept. 
And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You see, retaining control did not bring him fulfillment. We come to chapter 19, verse 1. If it's word gets to Joab, and Joab, the king is just weeping. And victory has been turned to mourning. Joab comes onto the scene and he confronts David and says, you'd be happier if all of us were dead and your son was still alive. These soldiers have fought for you. They've sided with you against all odds. If you don't go out and encourage them and address them right now, things are going to be worse for you now than they ever have been before. So finally, David goes out and sits at the city gate and his troops come before him. And he's able to speak to them. One man sought control and power. Found that that was an empty pursuit. There's no peace in that. He ended up dying under the judgment of God. Another man retains control. And yet, as the chapter comes to a conclusion and we head into chapter 19, all we find is grief because that control did not bring him fulfillment. My wife and I like to go for walks in the evenings, and we kind of live on the edge of the city out by the community of Toddville. And sometimes we'll go for walks in the country, but Barbara likes to go walk in town sometimes. So we will go to the southeast side of Cedar Rapids, park along Forest Lane, and then we will walk in the back way into the big Bruce Moore estate that many of us who live around here uh, were familiar with, that, with that estate. And it's beautiful inside. It's fenced all around. There's gorgeous gardens and reflection pools and orchards. And as you walk around those massive gardens and those trails, you can think, wow, I wonder what it would have been like to be the owner. You wouldn't have a care in the world. You'd have everything's all fenced in. You could just have complete seclusion. If there was a windstorm, you could just ring a bell and tell your staff to go clean it up. All the grass would be manicured. Everything would be perfect. Problem. Even when we have complete control over a situation, it doesn't bring inner fulfillment. There's only one way for us to find that type of fulfillment. And that's talked about in the verses that Pastor Brian read at the beginning of our service in John chapter 10. Through a son of David, the ultimate son of David, that Second Samuel chapter 7 ultimately addressed through Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 10, Jesus compares himself to a shepherd a shepherd that's willing to lay down his life for his sheep, for his people. And as he talked about that, he said that the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
We can spend, even those of us who are Christians who have put our faith in the person of Jesus Christ, we can spend our time on this earth trying to, in our own strength and our own abilities, seek control, thinking that that will give us peace and fulfillment, and it always comes up empty. The only way that we find peace and fulfillment is through a person, not through control. It's through the person of Jesus Christ and allowing him to replicate his life in and through us. If you're here this morning and you don't know what that means to find new life in Jesus Christ, one of our elders will be back in our prayer room directly behind you and have some material. You could just go in there and say, hey, can I have that material that Pastor Steve talked about? They will give that to you, and you can take your own Bible and look up passages of Scripture that will show you how you can know for sure that you can be in right relationship with God and experience this abundant life that John 10.10 is talking about. Or you may be here this morning, and you are fatigued and tired because you have been doing what so many of us do way too often. And that is trying to find our fulfillment and our peace by controlling our situation, striving. And if you're here feeling that weight today, I would encourage you not to leave this place without praying with a brother or sister in Christ. And you can go back to the prayer room as well and spend some time in prayer this morning. You see, both Absalom and David portray a very... A good image for us today in this passage. That being able to control the situation does not bring us fulfillment. Fulfillment is only found in a person. In the person of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for this passage. And the encouragement that it brings us. So often we feel like if we could just somehow get our arms around our situation, make things fit into our borders or our fences that that we lay out, that somehow then we could be at peace. And all that we find is is exhaustion. And even if we attain control, it doesn't bring fulfillment. Help us, Father, to be reminded that our fulfillment comes through a person, through Jesus Christ. That the Christian life is not lived by self, by controlling things ourselves, but by depending on the Spirit of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.